I'm Nareet Ben, and this is Life Deconstructed. Intimate, open conversations with successful women on how they got to where they are, the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way, and what success even means. Alana Karen started working at Google back when no one had ever heard of that word, before it turned into the world-changing giant that it is. She's an award-winning leader and speaker who spent 20 years in tech, today as a director at Google. Her new book is called Adventures of Women in Tech, How We Got Here and Why We Stay. In it, advice, a lot of insight, and interviews with over 80 women who all followed very different paths to get to where they are. Alana, thank you so much for being here. I just finished the book yesterday, and I have to say that I loved it, especially for how direct and practical it is. There's no, it's not a mantra book. It's a real insight and advice book. Yeah. I did not want it to be one of those books that you had trouble applying to your day to day. The whole point was I wanted a book that would speak to us that were in the middle trying to navigate our careers and figure out what to do. Well, it certainly does that. And before we get into why you wrote the book in the first place, what brought you to it and your impressions from talking to so many women, because you have a kind of a wealth of knowledge now from those conversations. I want to hear first about you and how you ended up where you are so far. So if we roll back to say, college when we're all starting to form our what the hell am I going to do with my life time. You were a liberal arts history major. What what were you like back then? I was taking a lot of history classes, creative writing classes, and I was sort of debating whether to minor in French, which I decided to not finish up. And so there really was nothing that would indicate to you that I was going to work in tech. But tech was just really taking off to what it was going to be. The internet was just becoming a thing you'd even think about. And I got interested in web design. And so then I ended up spending hours in computer labs I sound like a lot of fun, don't I? <laughs> it worked out. Well, clearly it worked out for you. So so you this sort of got on your radar at the beginning of the internet before other people had any inkling of what it was going to become. And you sort of taught yourself, learned out of just a, a basic interest in it. Yes. And I was self-teaching myself HTML and a little JavaScript. And so just figuring out how to do web design on my own, convinced professors that I could do internet projects instead of essays. And like and they probably, I'm sure they had a blank stare looking at you when you... Yeah, I was just the weirdest back. person. <laughs> the weirdest person. <laughs> I, I mean, in terms of convincing professors, I read that you also sort of talked yourself both into an internship and into your first job. Tell me a little bit about that, because that's also pretty bold at that age. I look back and I agree. At the time, I think that I was, it was so practical for me. Uh, I didn't love sitting in big lecture halls, classrooms. There were no classes in what I was interested in doing yet. Now there would be, now there would be a ton. Sure. But at the time, I didn't want to go down an engineering degree. I wanted this thing that was somewhat more artistic and they didn't have anything. And so for me that there were internships that I talked myself into where I could test out the skills. And then there was a particular one that was really a multimedia lab. And because I didn't have the engineering background, I somehow convinced the guy who ran it to let me in. Oh, amazing. That confidence got you in. You know, I really don't know sometimes. You don't know what about you is going to win someone over? Sure. But I know that I was always a well-spoken kid and I was super practical. So I think even though I wasn't very salesy, I was very much like, you need this and this. I have this and that, right? Like it's going to work. It'll be fine. And I do think that there was something in that approach that that helped me 
clinched some deals that would have otherwise not worked out. Well, that approach, I think, works at any age in any context to show the other person or the company why it is that they need you just as much you need uh, as you need them. So you start off on this path. How did you and, and when did you first end up at Google? I ended up at Google in 2001. I had been at another startup in the San Francisco Bay Area that had laid me off right after 9-11. And originally, I'd known the company was struggling and thought I would travel. And my mom said right away, you can't travel because... If you go back to that time, we really didn't know what was happening. And so I had remembered that a salesperson had come to my company from Google. And I'd remembered sort of storing it away like, oh, they've hired non-engineers. And I went to the website after I got laid off, applied for an entry-level role, and got in. There you go. Convinced them too. (laughs) (laughs) What was it like starting out there? I mean, how do you remember that first period of time? And I'm interested, I mean, you've been there now, I think, 18 years, but that doesn't mean just because you've been at one gigantic company doesn't mean you've been doing the same thing. I I mean, you've been in all kinds of different departments and all kinds of different roles. So I'm curious how you figured out, I'm sure there are many stages of this, but how you figured out what you wanted to do within that space? I mean, how did your path unfold there? Yeah, I think it was pretty organic because It's worth knowing that I've never known what I wanted to be when I grew up. That's comforting. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) I knew that I liked this space. I liked challenges and problems. And it turns out over time that I realized I really like operations, how you actually get the things done that everyone wants to get done and enabling those operations. But it was pretty organic that I was figuring that out. And the company was growing very quickly. So the first 10 years were more of a rocket ship ride. Right. Where yeah, that's, that's the classic word for Google at the beginning. Get on the rocket ship. So classic. I had to say, don't put a rocket ship on the cover of my book. I don't want the <laughs> rocket ship. It's been done. Um, so yeah, I'd started in this entry-level role, but it quickly grew into a project around policy, what ads we accept, what we don't accept. And that led to really kind of the first 10 years of my career, building out a team around that, that created, maintained, and implemented policies for ads and other products. And I got to do some other stuff along the way, but it was really at the 10-year mark that I decided to make a bigger change and go on to something new and learn a whole new space. And so that's when I moved. What prompted you to do that? What prompted me to do that? Yeah. I ask myself questions every year, a set of questions, and they could be different for everybody, but mine are, Am I still learning? Do I like what I'm doing? Do I like who I'm working with? And can I see the next year's worth of challenges? And it had just gotten to the point where those, I still loved who I was working with. My team was great, but it had gotten to the point where the other questions had started to really degrade over the years. And I had been doing it for a while. And so for me, I think that was the biggest driver in making a shift. I think that's amazing advice that anybody can, can use because so many of us, so much of the time get into a sort of autopilot type space or sink into the comfort of a job or the fear of leaving. And obviously you had this great situation to be at a company where there was so much opportunity within the same company, but still to reevaluate and be willing to make that kind of change. I mean, I want to hear more about that change, but in some of the decision-making along the way, one of the things I learned about you was that people would often tell you, you're so talented. Why aren't you more ambitious? Why aren't you aiming higher? And that really intrigued me for a lot of reasons that I'll wait to get into. But tell me a bit about why people told you that and, and what that meant for you or how you reacted to it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a very, I'm a very hard worker. And most of the things that I touch turn out well. <laughs> and I 
through often pure force of will, but I will also credit my my talent and strategic skill and, and all as of you that should. type of stuff, as I should. I won't underrate my my overall prowess as sometimes we do. Uh, but definitely sometimes I just like make it happen. I am a workhorse. And so I think over the years, people saw that and they saw my leadership skills and they put those two together and they thought like, oh, this person should be aiming for like, C-level jobs, or they should be, you know, taking their skills off to somewhere and working in the government, right? Because of policy stuff that I was working on at the time. Right. And the problem was that often their picture of ambition, of what that would mean, did not match what I wanted to do or what sounded good to me. And I tend to like smaller niche teams figuring out problems. I don't really aspire to C-level roles unless maybe it's a small company that I run one day. And so sometimes this, you know, their picture of me, it was very affirming and it was lovely, but I didn't know what to do with it. It's great that you're able to distinguish between their perception and yours, because it's really hard to sort of withstand that pressure to not have to take a certain job or try to go on a very particular path just because it's sort of what people expect or maybe what absolutely expect of ourselves. And I, I think it's way harder when you're still making the climb in your career. Um, I think I was fortunate that, well, I don't know, a weird mix. Um, if you read the book, I, I also talk about how I grew up without a lot of money. I didn't necessarily, I wanted to get to a place of stability. I never pictured this level of success for myself. So I think that people were already telling me that at a point also where I was just already so impressed with how stable I'd become and and how successful I was. And I also didn't really know what's next with that. And it wasn't that I wasn't still hungry for something, but I was hungry more for experience than a title um, or, or some specific level. So I think it might have varied depending on when people talk to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you had a very grounded view of success in that you were actually focused pretty early on on you being satisfied in terms of the kind of work you're doing and something being up your alley versus what other people say success should be, which is also rare, I might add. I wonder about the line, though, between ambition or going for the higher job and just between straight up sort of standing up for yourself and making yourself hurt because this was a very masculine environment, you know, man heavy, I guess, <laughs> however you want to describe it. Certainly, in the early years. I know tech has changed since, but I mean, was that something that came up for you or something that you had to learn along the way? Certainly. I mean, tech is man dominant still. When when we talk about improving the numbers in technical roles, we're still trying to get to 30%. Wow. And, and that's considered great. <laughs> like at 30%, we're not tokens anymore. It's an achievement. You know, it's, it's still pretty exciting. Now, I was in a company that had both technical and non-technical roles. And I'd started off on the sales side. And the sales side had way more parity, if not sometimes being woman dominant. So I think that I was really lucky in that what I felt in my early careers was I think a lot more about how I did speak up for myself and how I made myself heard and how I owned my own awesomeness and really felt it, but in a less gender specific way. Yeah. There's a lot of bright people around me. There's a lot of pressure um, to work fast and be awesome right. and really feeling like, oh, no, I am 
I am great. Um, and if I, how did you get to that though? Is that something that you had from the beginning or no. was that <laughs> accumulated over time? Cause like you're saying, it's, I mean, it's true to be in such an intense fast paced environment surrounded by brilliant people in all directions, you know, I'm, and I'm sure extremely high expectations. Yeah. I mean, I would say yes and no. There were certainly things where I knew I was like pretty smart. I was the knowledge expert and I would stand up for what I thought was right. And I, you know, I, I think I've always been that way. But I talk about this in the book. It took me much longer to realize that I should be asking for what I wanted in my career. That if I saw some interesting role, that I should ask about it and express interest in it. I often just waited and wondered why nobody was tapping my shoulder. It took me a long time to realize that other people were asking for things and I wasn't, or other people were expressing interest in this other version of standing up for yourself that I just had never realized, never, never, it seemed unknowable why this was happening and sort of magical. And it ended up, I think, being longer than it should have for me to say, oh, I'd like a change. Oh, I'd like an extra thing of responsibility. Oh, did you know I could do that? You know, there's a stat somewhere, I I don't remember where the statistic comes from, but that women will wait until they feel like they are 100% ready for a new job or challenge before they offer themselves up to do it. Whereas men, it's something like 50 or 60%. Like they go for it earlier on. And obviously, there are exceptions to every to every stat and every rule. But I feel like that connects a lot with it is this notion of if I work super hard, and I'm super smart, and I get it, you know, I'm doing everything 100%, then someone's going to notice and say, hey, you know, take this job, or you should go there. And so much of the time, no matter how brilliant you are, you need to actually do that for yourself. You can't expect other people to, to hand that to you. Yeah, women and other minoritized populations are much more likely to do that. What about the concept of taking credit, though? Because I feel like that has no connection with how smart someone is. And often someone can be super smart, brilliant on on 100% in their job. But for women, it seems a little bit tougher to say, oh, yeah, that was me. That was my work. I did that. Yeah, I talk about this in a book a little bit because there's some tension there, isn't it? Because we absolutely do have to be doing this. I talk about marketing 101 being a really important tool for us to learn. Like self-marketing? Like the ability to say, hey, I did this or my team did this and make people aware and in turn, you know, ask for what we need from those things. There's a lot of connected skills that require us to speak up and be able to say what we did well and what we need. And at the same time, there are studies too that women are penalized more for doing this sometimes, depending on how they do it, obviously. But often it can be appear as bragging or out for themselves. And this is sort of a society context of what women are expected to be. Um, And they are expected to be- Yeah. All of it in perfect amounts all the time. Right. They're expected to be supporters. They are expected to be really maintaining the whole and not out for themselves. And sometimes even that the way we speak up can be considered abrasive, you know, in the very same way that a man will be considered assertive and totally appropriate. We will be considered abrasive, aggressive. So there is a line to walk there, which is unfortunate. It's unfortunate we have to think about it. It's unfortunate we have to worry about it. At the same time, I did see that women 
had either intuited or over the course of their careers tended to figure out an approach to this um, or they were working towards it. What was your approach? I mean, how how did you navigate that? Because you seem like the perfect candidate for this because you're someone who, as you describe, is really great at their job, is getting things done, is noticed by other people for for the great work you do. So, I, I mean, is that something that you've had to manage yourself to? I think that, you know, it's just interesting because I don't want to make it seem like I never experienced this. But on the other hand, it has not been a dominant experience in my career. And I think that it was a couple of things. I think that I first for a while had to even figure out how to do it. And I think I was fortunate that other people were doing a good job speaking for what I was doing well. But in my first 10 years at Google, the team that I managed at the time would talk about wanting more recognition. Like, I didn't get it. Mm. Like, first of all, we were on a team that it was a really hard job. It's policy. Frankly, it's better if people don't hear or see us. If they see us, something went terribly wrong. (laughs) But we were often thanked on launch announcements. We were often credited at all hands for things. And so I kind of didn't get it. And it took me a while to realize that it was about, it was actually kind of reflecting me like what I was talking about and what I was saying and was I proactively sharing news about my team with others and in turn about myself. And that was sort of an interesting connection that I made. And I made kind of late, frankly, for that team. I did it much better on my next team. So I think partially it was a little late and I was already a pretty senior person when I got it. But I think the benefit of that was that I was already pretty senior when I started to do more of it. And so it was often that I wasn't speaking for myself. I was speaking for a team. And this is one of the ways that women have tended to manipulate this perception of ourselves. It's when we are speaking to something broader, when we are saying, I'm not just doing it for myself, but I'm doing it for others, or this is to credit my whole team, the whole effort, we often navigate the the downsides of you know appearing to brag or whatever very well because people still connect it with what they expect because you're speaking on behalf of of other people you're speaking yeah, on behalf it still makes you look good right it still makes you look good but you're not like just giving a long list of what you did and so that really helps I think the also th- the other thing is I'm really funny I mean I use it a lot that's always good and it I think it helps it just kind of breaks down some of what can sometimes appear too much now I will say there's a dark side which is that I can be self-deprecating and I sometimes overuse that. Oh yeah. Fine line. Fine line. I, I know all about that. Well, I want to go back to what you told me earlier that after the 10 year mark, you asked yourself those, yourself those questions and didn't really love the answers and felt like you needed a change. What did you change? What did you move into at that point? How'd you do that? I moved into Google Fiber, which is our ultra fast broadband product. And it was a new product that was growing. It had not launched in a city yet. And I was really interested in going back to that startup-y feel. It also gave me the opportunity to do something slightly different than what I'd done before. While I had been running operations, I hadn't been running it for an external customer-facing product. And so I got to make that move into customer service and installs. I was basically going to develop and run that for Google Fiber. And it was a big leap, right? Like that was a big leap. Like I wasn't someone who was coming from a telecom who had done that before. And I really liked that challenge. I also had been collecting ideas for a while, I think, and 
how I would do customer service better. And so it gave me a platform to try these things out that that really intrigued me. So yeah, it was fun. It was fun to start from scratch. I think that was the prevailing the prevailing thing that I was thinking about. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you have three kids. Am I right? I do. So I have to ask, I mean, this whole category of things, which I find so important and interesting and always wonder about myself. First of all, where were you professionally? Where were you at when you started having kids? And how did that shift things for you? If whether it's in the literal work or just in your perception of what you're doing and and why really? I was a director at Google. I had hit director in 2007. I had my first child in 2009. I think that it probably did help that I'd achieved that level. Mm -hmm. While some people continue to climb the ladder very quickly post that level, it's also kind of expected you'll hang out at director for a bit of time. So I think there was kind of that ability, but I also just, it was age-wise, time-wise, right? Uh, I was in my early 30s, so it was time to get moving, (laughs) get that party started. Yeah, yeah, something, again, I think um, many of us will be familiar with, well, okay, there is a certain reality if you want kids, you got to think about it at a certain point. Something, I mean, something bothers me about this phrase that we all use all the time, the the work-life balance, because it sort of implies that work isn't part of our lives when it's actually most of our waking hours. But for lack of a better term, how do you or did you find some sort of balance? Because you're you're not in a simple, yeah. relaxed job. No, no, it's never been entirely relaxed. <laughs> I think that I look at it over a longer arc. I think often we're trying to find it in any given day. Yeah. And there's a lot of the book that I think reflects that that's not always totally possible. <laughs> you can't start every day with meditation and childcare and then work and then have a lovely dinner and bedtime and, you know. A little hot yoga. <laughs> I think that you, there's a whole chapter on surviving versus thriving. And what you see in that is that women are navigating this push and pull every day. And and I felt very similarly. So I was really looking over a broader arc. And there were times where I felt like, okay, great, the kids are in great situations, and I can, you know, step on the gas and totally focus. And there were times when we were making big kid transitions, or I had an infant, or whatever it was. And I'm like, okay, I'm just here at work to get these things done keep the people moving, keep the people happy. uh, And then I'm going to go like try to get this baby to sleep train. So I think that that has helped me kind of thinking it like we're going to work for 50 years. And over the course of it, I would like to feel like I achieved some level of balance um, and having it all, which is another terrible phrase. Just not at the same time. Just not at the same time. Yeah, I really like the notion of that arc because I think what stresses women out so much is, you know, it's hard to look at it over the course of a lifetime or even 10 years or something. And when you're thinking just ahead, I mean, I'm curious actually from your experience, what you might tell a woman who fears having a baby will derail her career that they that she's worked so hard for that maybe isn't seeing, I guess, that, that big arc. Well, I, I guess what I would say is that there is a longer arc. Now, if it really burns you to fall behind, to put off for three years or five years what you want now, 
Or frankly, just very practically, you need a higher salary sooner, right? right? And that that's part of why you want that promotion. Then I think it is thinking about, okay, then how can you prioritize it, right? How in the short term can you make this work? If you need to really put that extra effort in in the next year to get that promotion, how are you going to do it? Can you afford help? Can you get help from family? Like, how is that going to work for you? to make that happen? And then could you picture a future where once you've achieved that promotion, then you're able, instead of keeping up that pace, to allow yourself a different version of that future? And so I I think that there's, you know, there's no one size fits all approach to this. And I definitely see people who feel like in the short term, they need to push more. And I totally get that. And so the question just is, okay, then if those variables are the most important to you, what are you doing? Can you not decide that you need to have Pinterest perfect birthday parties for your kid, right? Like where, what's going to- With the perfect cake and the perfect, oh God. Can you just buy the Safeway cupcakes, right? And be good with it. Because frankly, the kids don't like the nice stuff anyway. Right. I actually, I will I will give an anecdote on that note just for proof that I still, my I, I offended my mother and I still remember it when I was a kid. She would make these elaborate cakes- for my birthday. I mean, not elaborate, like anything by by the stretch, by what we see on Instagram today, but, you know, nice kind of like French pastry type cakes. And I was just embarrassed. And I said, I just want the supermarket cake with the blue frosting. Just like I worked so hard. So I, I will just vouch for what you said, that really the kids don't care and they want the cheap stuff usually. The blue frosting and they'll fight over the flowers. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be picking and choosing some of those things. And I think the worst thing, by the way, that we can do to each other as women is then question those calls, right? And be like, oh, yeah. oh like, why didn't you do this nicer? Or why didn't you make that? Like, why can't you and there's so much of that. submit to so that? Much like, that. you know, like all of these kinds of things, I think are really hard. And we, we need to be nicer to each other about it. 100%. That is so important, because there is a lot of that, that kind of shaming for no reason. On just one last thing on the on the note of work life balance because you're really in the thick of it. I mean, to be at Google at a time like this when really all jobs are becoming more flexible in a way, uh, and certainly in tech, where I know a lot of companies have said just don't come back. You can you can work for home from home for all the foreseeable future. Is that good or or bad for the life balance thing? Do you think in your experience or working at a team, the fact that we can suddenly work from home? Real pros and cons here. There were people with very long commutes before. If you think about the Bay Area and the Bay Area traffic. Oh, yeah. Even something that you think should be a half hour away was an hour away. And so that's time in a car, not great for our bodies, on a bus, away from families if we if we have children. And obviously, children have also been home. Some mixed versions there now where some kids are going to hybrid programs or whatnot. But a lot of people had kids at home. And so, you know, how could they go to work anyway if their kids are home? Yeah. So I think that there were some real pros in terms of opening us up all to that experience instead of having some people who had to juggle it, have everybody juggle it, have us all kind of accept oh, this is what's happening and we need to be really mindful of our health, et cetera, and reduce some of the strains that we'd had, you know, running all over the place day to day. We're real pros. On the con side, some people are sitting home alone in a studio apartment. The when does the day start, the workday start and 
stop. And when does it end? And when does it end? Does it ever end? It was always pretty bad in tech. But yeah. now, you know, I've we've heard, I was just talking with a director on my team and she was like, so now I've heard multiple anecdotes of people waking up in the middle of the night and working. Oh no. And to me, that's like, because people themselves can't blur that line between the on time and off time. It's it's a real mixture, right? I think I think that there's definitely why is there so much work that you thought of it when you woke up in the middle of the night, but you made the decision that when you woke up in the middle of the night, you were going to get up and do work. So, yeah. you know, definitely this real mixture of stuff going on. And I think that while we're thinking about it a lot, it does come down to a lot of the personal choices that we make and how we defend and keep our own boundaries always, but especially during this time. Right. That's such a huge thing. And it makes me think of leadership. I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit, because I'm sure that that's something you're also dealing with. You deal with both in yourself and then as a leader, because you have to set your own boundaries and figure out how do I separate, especially when you're in a high level position, but also how do I make sure my team, I guess, isn't working until midnight and, and you know, that this is the lifestyle we're creating. I mean, how do you sort of rise and grow in your experience? into leadership positions. Is that something that you just sort of have it or you don't, or is it learned for you? I mean, you know, in your experience. Yeah. Yeah. From my experience, I I would say it's kind of a mixture. I think that if you want a manager role, a leadership role, you do have to be thinking and collecting some skills about how you mentor other people, how you coach people, how you motivate others, um, how you inspire followership, followership. And we historically, I think, have made a sense of thinking that that's people have it or they don't. What I've seen over time is it's very much a learned skill. There's a muscle there. Most people who start off in individual contributor roles where they're independent and just thinking about themselves do have to go through some kind of transition to start to be like, okay, it's not just me. And how do I start to foster these individuals? And yes, some people are more natural at it than others, but I think there's a pretty broad set of people who could do those roles. But you might not like it. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to is does this you can be good at something and not like it, not want to do it. Or to put it another way, too, you're never going to be quite as good at it if you don't like it. (laughs) Right. Right. Because the whole thing is you have to be motivated. You have to be motivated to think about other people all the time and deal with their issues. And there's definitely days where you're going to feel like mommy or daddy because somehow these people did not get it yet. Sure. And and they've arrived at your doorstep and they still need to develop as, as individuals. And so you are really going to want to like what you do on those days. Are, are Were there times, I mean, over these 18 years that you felt like you were in a position, whether leadership or not, that you said, wait, this is actually... This is really not for me that you learned along the way that something about it, it just doesn't suit you, that it's not where you want to be. Well, I always, I loved being a leader and, and there were, there was time about 2011 where I was really like, I'm going to double down on this leadership thing. And I'm going to really focus in on how you be a great people focused leader. And, and that's going to be my jam. Like, how do I do this? How do I motivate people? So for the most part, I've always really enjoyed it. Um, and, and was really invested in it and was thinking about it. And there were times, though, where I said, okay, this place isn't for me. Because as a leader, I'm being asked to embody values or to do things that just aren't aligned with how I lead. And that's when it was time for me to move on. But no, I don't think, 
I get tired. Like we're right in the middle of performance review season. And that's a lot of work of rating our employees, doing their performance reviews, trying to get them promoted. It's a ton of extra work on top of a already high workload. I get tired. Oh, sure. Well, but I don't, I don't want to quit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if, if, and when you do, then you'll have a lot of reflection to take you to where you want to go next from what I understand. So, I mean, we've, we've obviously referenced it a lot. You've referenced it, but let's talk a little bit more about the book and I'm kind of like bigger picture because you spoke to so many different women. And what I loved was that you especially have this section where everybody talks about a different way that they sort of got into whatever job that they do. And they're all very unexpected. It's not, you know, a cut and dry. This is how you get into tech story. I wonder overall, what kind of surprised you about hearing when hearing so many women's stories? Was there something that you said, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't see it this way or I didn't realize this was such a thing, I, you know, whatever it may be. Well, you know, I've been talking to women in tech for 20 years and I endeavored to do some of the things that I think that people hadn't been hearing about, like hearing about both people in technical roles and non-technical roles within companies so that they know those roles exist. Right. Because we forget that there are those right, things. Right. A lot. I mean, those of us who are not in that world. So I think some of the things that might surprise others reading those stories, I, I very on purpose put in there. I think that it re-emphasized to me how important it is to take some chances, both in how we take chances in our careers, right? Like we apply for the thing or we tell people we're looking and they get a chance to take a chance on us. It, it re-emphasized how important that was because as you said, there were very few like linear paths where they were like, I went to engineering school, I became an engineer, yeah. right? Like there were very, very few of those and way more times where people were really trying to get into a field and someone said, yes, I will take a chance on you or, you know, went down a path in another type of company and that enabled them to then make the leap. And, and all of that was things where they took chances. And so I think it really reemphasized to me, it didn't surprise me necessarily, I'd already believed it, but really reemphasized to me how integral it was to the stories I was hearing. I mean, after talking to so many women who had those kinds of different paths, I wonder if you have any kind of thoughts or advice for someone listening who feels like they either have no idea where they're supposed to be or what they're supposed to be doing or how to get on that certain path from somewhere that's unrelated. You know, I know that's yeah. it's kind of a, a broad question, but I think a lot of people go through that. And and maybe even more so now in amid COVID when a lot of people have sort of been either by choice or forced to reevaluate where they are and what they're doing. Yeah. I think that the answers I have to those, like the two-parter are sort of pretty similar because I think that often, at least what I find useful and what I've advised to others and, and seems to have helped them is think about what you like to do and what you have already demonstrated are your core competencies. Like you are good at these things. And let that guide you to some extent on the next thing. So for example, when I got into tech initially, it was as a webmaster, which was like kind of, I don't know, do we even use that language anymore? But basically I was running someone's website. And I realized over time that while I was good at it, I didn't get enough human interaction. And so that's what took me down the road of applying to customer facing roles, which I did at my previous startup and then at Google. 
And from there, other opportunities arose. But it was like that core thinking of what do I like to do during the day? And what am I good at that helped me figure out what was next? And likewise, when you're making a leap, really being very clear on what your core competencies are is very important because you're going to have to convince whoever else that they should take a bet on you. And other people are very bad at looking at your resume. There's like, let let me, let me rephrase that. 10% of people are good at looking at a resume and seeing possibility. I think the first version then was accurate. Most people are bad. (laughs) A very small amount of people will look at a resume and see possibility and think of a role for you. Yeah. Most people need you to stage the house. <laughs> Just like when, when people are buying houses, most people can't. Yeah, see yeah. It. They can't, they can't picture it. It's the same thing here. You need to have up at the top of your resume, you know, I have 10 years experience negotiating agreements, right? Pull it out for them so that then any role they have with negotiation, mm-hmm. they understand you would be applicable for. Um, and so that's that's the kind of stuff you're gonna have to do particularly in a tough time like now yeah, where job market's competitive, people have been laid off and you might have to take something a little bit askew from what you were doing before. I really like though, I mean, my kind of, my takeaways from that is on one hand, when you actually are approaching something or approaching someone to draw out the, the key points and the headlines for other people to kind of take a macro view and not a specific role or nitty gritty or sort of spell it out for people. And that's a good exercise, I think, to do for ourselves. But also what you're talking about, about figuring out the next step is to think about characteristics or experiences that we like. Because I think a lot of times when we are trying to figure out, you know, I don't know what I want to do with my life or, or where should I go next? We think about it in terms of a particular position or company or, you know, what's the title that would fit? And that's a really hard thing to do a lot of the time. So if you think more broadly, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, before I let you go, I just want to try to benefit from a little of your, all of this experience and this thinking and this research that you've done. I mean, if you were to, this sort of classic thing, if you were to sit down for coffee with your 20-year-old, I don't know, webmaster self or pre-webmaster self, whatever it might be, what do you think you might tell her? I would say you've got all these hangups where you think you don't belong or you're not awesome and you're going to be your own problem. Like go work on those. Work on them now. Start (laughs) therapy now. Don't wait till you're 30-something. Just start it now. Because frankly, I think that would have helped me in my relationships and like all sorts of things along the way. But it really did show up in work and how long it took me to feel like I could ask for what I wanted, that I was a leader, that I was a leader in tech. Like it, it it wasn't until... I started to write this book that I was like, okay, I'm a woman leader in tech. Until you had to find, you know, write your biography. Until I had to write my biography. Basically, and write the title and sell yourself. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah. Better late than never. Better late than never. So yeah, 20 year old self, just get on it. All right. I like that. That's a good that's a good ending point. The the book is called Adventures of Women in Tech: How We Got Here and Why We Stay. Uh, I have never worked in tech and I found it very practical and helpful. It's definitely not only for women who work in those fields. I encourage people to read it and thank you so much for taking the time Alana Karen. It's been really interesting talking to you. Great to talk to you. Great questions. 
Thank you guys for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from. On Twitter, write us at Narit Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And hold on, here's a peek at next week's episode. By age 29, Daphne Bravo was managing $300 million in annual retail sales and climbing up the executive ranks. But it took her body shutting down a hurricane and ultimately pregnancy to confront what she knew deep down. I was in my early 20s. We had purchased this beautiful home on the water in Long Island. Uh, we had a boat, you know, multiple vehicles. I mean, we were just living a very lavish life. Checking, for, all, the, checking all the boxes. In, right, in my mid-20s. And I just... I couldn't imagine a world in which my decisions that had brought me to that place would have been wrong. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.